Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, just wanted to give you a quick heads up before the episode starts. This week we are discussing a story in which the victim is an adult, but the perpetrators had some stuff in their childhood that's pretty terrible, and we do talk a little about that in this episode, since we don't make it a habit of talking about crimes against children and It's not the focus of this episode. We did leave it in, but just wanted to give you a heads up. It's around the 28 minute mark, but if you wanted to see the exact times, if you wanted to skip through that, we will have that in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well, thanks. We had um, my son's birthday this past week, which was a lot of fun. We kind of talked about that last week, and he's eight, and that's crazy. And how do we have these big kids now? I know. It is crazy to think that our little ones are eight years old. That just seems... Yeah. I... I I remember thinking when, you know, back when they were little, I was like, how weird is it going to be when they're five and six? And now here they are and they're eight. And it's like, yeah, it's definitely just as weird as I thought it was going to be. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, he'll still like hold my hand and stuff. So I've got a little bit of time left because I very much remember when my daughter stopped. I I literally asked her like, will you just hold my hand one more time and I won't ask it anymore? Because I wanted to remember, like, which is so silly and I'm not super sentimental, but I just knew that was like such a big growing up thing. And yeah. I just wanted to have that moment. 
I'm going through a lot tonight there, Mandy. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing excellent. I got my haircut, like, actually. Yes. So, you know, really sometimes. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, sometimes when people are like, oh, I got a haircut, and then you see them, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, like, yeah, I, yeah. I guess you got a haircut. Well, like, I actually got, like, a drastic haircut, which is something I just really would never I've do I've never before. known yeah. you <laughs> to do that. Yeah, I mean. Earlier, even on the show, you were talking about doing a Crystal Gale thing and growing your hair out as long as you possibly could. And then I know, it's gone. I know. Yeah, I know. I went through that stage where I really wanted to grow it out. I had it really long, and then I cut it last summer, pretty short, and I liked it. And then it's been about a year since I cut it, and it was kind of getting to that weird medium length kind of thing. And I was like, I'm either I either just need to get it trimmed and let it keep going, or just chop right. it off. So I just made the the decision split second and said chop it so it is short shorter shorter but I feel great about it so yeah yeah it's it's not a child's birthday but it's something (laughs) (laughs) I'm team short hair though you know that I'm always like that I love great I can't believe how light it feels and I think I'm gonna really enjoy it like for the rest of the summer like while it's so warm and humid it'll be nice having um, a lot less hair on the back of my neck for sure for sure okay so moving into the episode for this week I am a very cautious person. I think I've said that numerous times on the show. I'm probably more paranoid than most people. And as a result of that, I like to think anyway that I have kept myself out of many dangerous situations and scenarios. I think a lot of our listeners can probably relate to feeling a little wary of strangers or even just new people that we don't know that much about. This is one of the reasons that I don't really understand things like blind dates, which I know they can and they do work out. So don't come for me. Don't hate for me for being scared of the idea oh, they're for coming. myself. I know. They're coming. I know. I am sure there have been many stories. Many listeners, I'm sure, have met somebody on a blind date or, you know, very quickly got married and it worked out. And I'm so happy that that, that worked out. I have a question, though. Do you yeah. like a blind date typically – the friend is setting you up. So you might not know the person, but your friend is setting you up. So, well, so yeah. there's some commonality okay. there, right? Well, okay, yes. But how? I guess it also depends on the friend. Do I trust the friend to set me up? Oh, see, yeah. See, there's too no. many factors involved in those kind of things. I don't, I don't, I like Okay, to, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> I'm not in control of too many of the factors in those kind of things. So that's why <laughs> I just don't like that sort of thing. But if it worked out for you, I'm very happy for you. I'm not I'm not knocking on that method. I'm just saying for me, I don't think that I would meet somebody that way. So the story that we have this week is fascinating to me because it happened in a time where people in general really didn't seem to think much about getting involved with a total stranger. The concept of stranger danger didn't really become a thing until the 80s, and even then, it was referring to children being kidnapped or harmed by strangers. But I feel like the adult version of stranger danger didn't really start to become a thing until online dating became a thing and came into the picture. The story this week is tragic, and it's a cautionary tale about a 30-year-old woman named Cindy Monkman who found herself involved with a man who had nothing but ulterior motives from the beginning. Cindy Monkman was born September 16, 1958, in Pensacola, Florida. Her mom, Dorothy, passed away with cancer when Cindy was just seven years old. She and her sister, Kathy, were raised by her father, John, who later remarried a woman named Marjorie. At some point, Cindy and her family moved to Arizona. Despite the tragedy of losing her mom at a very young age, Cindy was very well adjusted as a child. She was very outgoing, and she was a natural leader. She was very popular, energetic, and funny, and she was also very, very pretty. Some people called her a traffic stopper, which I feel like is a phrase from 
I don't that know. That time, right? Yeah, from that time. You don't hear that anymore. But I like that one. A traffic stopper. I, I've been known to be a traffic stopper, but that's literally people are like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. <Stop. laughs> yeah. So Cindy, though, had a very vivacious personality, and she practically never met a stranger. She was very, very trusting of others. Cindy got a bachelor's degree in nutrition from Illinois State in 1980 and went on to get her master's in community health from Western Illinois University. She worked at a weight loss center as a nutrition counselor by day and waited tables at a pizzeria at night. Although Cindy was very intelligent and educated, she was known to be very naive, especially when it came to men that she had been in relationships with. In 1988, Cindy had recently ended a relationship with her boyfriend, Mark, and was officially back on the market and somewhat vulnerable to the next smooth talker that came her way. One night in October of 1988, Cindy and her sister Kathy were out for a night of fun at a bar and restaurant called Bobby McGee's. While the sisters were out, a friend named Annette spotted them and came over to say hello and introduced them to her two new friends that she was at the bar with. They were named Rudy and Michael Appelt. Annette had just met these two brothers a couple of days earlier at the same bar that they were at, Bobby McGee's. Annette had apparently exchanged numbers with Michael, one of the brothers, when they hit it off a couple of nights before. Michael allegedly worked in IT for a Fortune 500 company, and Rudy worked in international banking. The men both had stylish clothing. Michael actually fancied wearing tuxedos and gold jewelry. And the fact that the brothers weren't from around Arizona made their charm and appeal that much more irresistible. But were they really who they said they were? Michael and Rudy had come from Germany and had only been living in the U.S. for a couple of months. There was a pretty big language barrier, and I mean... A massive language barrier. The brothers spoke very little English aside from just a few basic words, so getting to know people in the U.S. was a little bit challenging for them. Unfortunately, Annette had no way of knowing that these two German men she met and introduced to her other friends had dangerous potential in all of their lives. Michael and Rudy, who were 28 and 25, had not come to the U.S. by legitimate means, and from the moment they arrived, they were living by the seat of their pants and having to run cons and spend these elaborate lies about themselves to obtain money and assistance. It was really their ultimate plan all along to find a woman to marry Michael. When the Appelt brothers came to America, they didn't come alone. Rudy was actually married to a woman named Suzanne who came along, as well as an ex-girlfriend of Michael's named Anki Dorn. The four of them arrived in San Diego, California in August of 1988, and they immediately set out on their plan to find a wife for Michael and establish themselves in this new country. By the time the brothers met up with Annette, Cindy, and Kathy, they had already been in pursuit of this mission and had already conned a few women already. Back in San Diego, where the four German citizens first arrived, the Appelt brothers met two women named Cheryl and Trudy at a nightclub. These women were in San Diego on business, but they were originally from Phoenix. They couldn't communicate with the brothers very well because, as we said before, there was a language barrier. But strangely enough, an interpreter was tracked down and the brothers were able to convey a few things to Cheryl and Trudy. I'm just trying to imagine being at a bar or a nightclub and and just meeting these two guys and like you don't speak the same language, but like you track down a interpreter. (laughs) Like I just like that whole that whole I can't. I just can't picture that yeah, whole thing going down in a bar. Like, that's just yeah, crazy it is. to me. <laughs> I'm just wondering how how you get there. How exactly does that all work out? Um, you know, I watch a lot of 90 Day Fiance, and I have seen love come through translator apps, which 
like right, literal right. entire relationships. <laughs> so it can happen if you have an interpreter, but it seems especially difficult back then to to be able to have right. these conversations without an interpreter. That's like the key here. So they tell these women that they're windsurfing board manufacturers as well as Mercedes importers. This feels very George Costanza to me with importers and exporters. And anybody who watches Seinfeld <laughs> will get that. But Rudy failed to mention that he was married to Suzanne, who was holed up in some hotel room while these guys are out trying to con women at bars. So before this evening ended, the brothers exchanged numbers with Cheryl and Trudy, and two weeks later, they ended up flying to Phoenix, where Cheryl picked them up from the airport and took them to a hotel, the Holiday Inn. The brothers actually moved to a cheaper hotel, Motel 6, but they continued to pretend that they were living large at the Holiday Inn. Keep in mind during this whole thing, Rudy's wife Suzanne and Michael's ex-girlfriend Anki Dorn were still back in San Diego. That dynamic really fascinates me, by the yeah. way, as the story goes on, like your ex-girlfriend came to the U.S. with you. I, I don't I don't really get what's going right. on there. And you'll learn more as we go along. So after a couple of weeks in Arizona, the brothers fly back to California to pick up Anki and bring her back to Phoenix to stay in the Motel 6 with them. At this time, though, Suzanne left and went back home to Germany. I mean, good for her. Good yeah. decision here. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So while now living in Arizona, the brothers spend the next month trying to meet and con more women with lies of a wealthy and intriguing life. Before being introduced to Cindy Monkman, Michael had already asked three other women if they would marry him. And even though Cindy was there that night with her sister Kathy and her friend Annette, Cindy is the one that Michael focused on and she became the target of his next con. After being introduced by Annette, Michael spent the rest of the evening doing whatever he could to get closer to Cindy. They actually danced together throughout the night, and they seemed to be getting along. Michael spoke a few words in English to Cindy, and those words were, quote, you're the woman I want to marry, and, quote, me, you, marry. So this is literally within hours of meeting this woman. So he is saying, I want to marry you. You're the woman I want to marry. And I... You know what? I've heard of these things happening where people meet and they're just like drawn to each other. And we've done stories about it where they've just looked at each other and said, this is going to work. This is the one, right. Right. But this is an added layer with them not even being able to communicate, really. Right. You know, yeah. this is this is extra difficult. It's an, an extra barrier on top of all this. But it's a lot. It's a very intense very quickly. Right. And I can see, like you said, like if you've actually had a conversation with somebody and you maybe met them just that night, I can see if you're like, you know what, I really think there's potential with this person. Like I definitely want to see them again. But just like dancing with them and barely speaking at all and then just being like, hey, I want to marry you. Like, okay, buddy, like let's have you've that conversation. you got to have some J-Lo moves. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> After that night, Annette and Cindy continued to see and talk to the Appelt brothers, and they saw them multiple times over the next week. After one visit with the brothers, Cindy realized that she was missing $100. She told Annette about it, and they both became a little more aware and just a little bit more suspicious. They kind of had their guard up a little bit more. Annette and Cindy decided to do a little bit more investigating into these brothers' story. They started calling around to the hotels to find out if the brothers were really staying at the Holiday Inn, and they found out that they were not. Um, they were staying at the Motel 6. So the women asked Michael and Rudy about it, but they just said that there was some kind of a mistake. I don't know what the mistake could be if you called the Holiday Inn and they said no, and then you called the Motel 6 and they said yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> so like, so yeah, anyway. That's, that's your creative mistake. I don't know what you can do there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Annette and Cindy, they kind of worked through this with the guys and they dropped the men off at the Holiday Inn. The guys said, no, we are staying at the Holiday Inn. Take us there. So the women were like, okay. So they dropped them off at the Holiday Inn. But then they decided a little bit later to go drive to the Motel 6. And they ended up finding the room where the brothers were actually staying at the Motel 6. And they also found that Anki Dorn was inside the room so imagine the surprise that must have been for everybody even for Anki Dorn who's sitting in this room and is like who are these women that are now coming to the door and they're looking for you know the brothers and it's like what and then imagine how surprised they must have been that there was a woman in the room so yeah this is where things kind of get a little like oh okay there's a lot of people involved now so before we go any further there is a new movie on Netflix and it's called good on paper and have you ever heard of the comedian eliza schlesinger Schlesinger? i think so okay she's very funny she has a bunch of uh there's a really good netflix special i think it's called elder millennial um but she has this movie and it's based on the story that happened to her where she got conned by this guy for a long time he's good on paper but she literally goes through a situation like this where she goes to where his address is and it's like not the right one and stuff there's a lot of similarities it's not as dark as this story is but it is like if you like the con sort of thing right yeah this part really reminds me of it but it's it's kind of crazy but it happens it can even happen now I mean this was a couple years ago and she was totally conned by this guy because everything's you want it to work out you know what I mean there's like a, a degree of that Um, where you want something to happen. Yeah, definitely. So the next day after Annette and Cindy, you know, found this hotel room, found that they had somebody else inside the room, the brothers told the women that they were very, very mad at them because they had tracked, you know, them down at their hotel and they kind of just barged in on them like that. And the brothers claimed that this snooping that the women did had ruined their high security clearance and caused them to be fired from their jobs and lose their work visas. It hasn't even been a day since any of this happened and they're saying like, oh, we've lost our work visas and yeah. our high security clearance. I'm like, I, listen, I know things happen quick, but in the government, they don't happen that quick. So I would have <laughs> like immediately I would have been like, wait a minute, like this just happened yesterday. Like, how do you know? all Yeah, of that? but like, some people but if you're in the middle of it and all this is going on and somebody's telling you and you're thinking, I can see I can see my initial reaction being to believe somebody. I can come yeah. down from that. But my initial one is just to be like, oh my gosh, this is what have I done? Yeah. Well, Annette and Cindy, that's pretty much what they were like. They felt <laughs> they felt very, very bad. But they did ask who Anki was, and the brothers said that she was a family friend and her husband was in the hospital. So I guess she was just kind of staying with them. The women believed the story and they apologized and they offered to help the brothers get their jobs back or help them find new jobs. But the brothers were really resistant to that and they refused to consider any of the suggestions that they had for, you know, being able to get new employment. Annette was really frustrated. And so at one point she just blurted out, well, what do you want us to do? Marry you? And of course, the brothers were like, Yes, that is exactly what we want you to do. Yeah. So Rudy moved into Annette's apartment and Michael went to live with Cindy in her apartment and Anki stayed in the Motel 6 room. At this point, Annette was in pretty deep. She was talking to Rudy about the possibility of a fake marriage so that he would be able to get work in the U.S. But Rudy told Annette that he actually loved her and if they got married, it was going to be real and it was going to be forever. But... There has to be one caveat here. Nobody can know about this marriage. He said it has to be kept totally a secret. 
However, less than a week later, Annette figured out the truth about Anki and that she was actually Michael's ex-girlfriend. And Annette didn't really like this and didn't understand why they had lied about this. So she told Rudy to leave and she never saw him again after that. But even though there were clear signs that something didn't add up, Cindy continued a relationship with Michael. Michael asked Cindy if she could help pay for flights so Rudy and Anki could go back to Germany, and Cindy did. She gave him the money. But Rudy and Anki did not go back to Germany. In actuality, they kept living in a motel in Arizona. Wow. Yeah. So just a few weeks after they first met, Cindy and Michael traveled to Las Vegas and got married on October 28th, 1988. They just met also in October. So this is all happening very, very fast. Wow. Yeah. So they didn't tell anyone that they got married. Once the marriage was official, Michael began planning the ultimate con. Step one was to get Cindy to take out a life insurance plan and list her new husband as the beneficiary. Once that was in place, according to Michael, Cindy could be killed for the insurance money. Of course, even Michael knew that he couldn't just go and ask his brand new wife about setting up an expensive life insurance policy on herself before the ink was even dry on their marriage license. So he waited for 11 whole days. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, come on. So on November 7th, Michael approached Cindy with the idea of taking out a life insurance policy on her. Cindy was on board with this idea, especially after speaking to an insurance salesman named Doug Ramsey about a $1 million policy. Keep in mind, though, Cindy thinks Michael is wealthy and has his hand in high-dollar businesses like importing Mercedes cars. Michael told Cindy that in Germany, it was customary for newlyweds to invest in large insurance policies. This is where you could get me. You could get me with this too, honestly. Yeah. Then you think, well, I want to respect your culture and respect what you do. And so we'll go go along with it. Unfortunately, Doug Ramsey, uh, the insurance salesman, said that they didn't qualify for this $1 million policy, but that they might qualify for a $400,000 policy. So Cindy agrees, and she fills out an application and pays the first month's premium. A couple of weeks went by, and on November 25th, Cindy and Michael learned that they didn't qualify for the $400,000 policy either. The most they could get was a policy for $100,000. Doug also agreed to help them apply for a $300,000 policy from another company. So then they waited some more. In the meantime, while all this life insurance approval process is going on, Michael, Rudy, and Anki were living it up. Here's the thing that I looked this up also and had no idea that this was something that you could do. The three of them were actually going around on shopping sprees, but since they didn't have any actual money at the time, they were signing these contracts to buy these things at a later time, which to me is like credit cards without checking your credit or anything, right? So they would fill out a purchase contract and pay a small down payment, and then they promised to pay the rest when they got their money from Germany is what they were saying. So they put purchase contracts on designer watches totaling $130,000. They also put purchase contracts on two Jaguars totaling $144,000 and two Toyota Supras totaling $66,000, which seems to be the best idea out of all of those that they made. But like, who did they, who did they get those for? And they're like, oh, we got Jags, you got a Toyota Supra. (laughs) (laughs) I would get the Toyota Supra in the relationship. Um, But also, it just blows my mind. Like, 
they really didn't have any plan going into this, like marrying somebody wealthy. They were just like, we have to marry someone because it doesn't seem like Cindy, you know, her background and job and stuff, she was a millionaire. And so they're making, doing all this just in the hopes of this life insurance, which isn't going to be that much when it's no, all said and done. exactly. It, it's just a lot. So Michael's using Cindy's hard-earned money to support himself and Rudy and Anki, totally unbeknownst to Cindy. From October to December of 1988, Cindy withdrew over $4,000 from one of her accounts. During one of the big shopping sprees that the brothers and Anki went on, Michael said that if Cindy, quote, died an unnatural death, he would be rich. Yikes. Wow. In the early part of December, Michael was thinking that surely this $300,000 life insurance policy they'd applied for would be approved very soon. So he told Rudy and Anki to go ahead and rent a car with a large trunk for December the 9th. But then Doug Ramsey threw a wrench into his plan when he notified Michael that the insurance company needed a little more background and financial information from the couple. Cindy provided the additional information needed and Doug resubmitted the application. Since Michael couldn't get rid of Cindy just yet, he told Rudy and Anki to cancel the car rental. Things got even worse on December 11th when Cindy and Michael were at a party together and Cindy decided to announce their marriage to everyone in the room. The other party guests, some of which were Cindy's own family, were absolutely stunned by this news. Cindy's sister Kathy was flabbergasted, and from that point on, their relationship became very strained. Cindy and Kathy had to start speaking to each other in Spanish because Michael would listen to their conversations and would get mad at Cindy if she talked to Kathy at all. It's just so hard to imagine this, you know, because it's it's all happened so quickly. And so to put yourself even in Kathy's shoes, because she was there that night when they met these brothers. And so it's not like she doesn't, you know, kind of know. But imagine how shocking that would be if your sister was like, hey, I married that guy we met at the bar like three weeks ago. Like, and yeah. you didn't, and didn't tell you. Like, you would definitely yeah. be like, what is going on here? Why would you do something like that? Right. On December 22nd, Doug Ramsey delivered the news to Cindy and Michael that their application for the $300,000 policy had finally been approved, as well as the $100,000 policy that he also helped them with. Michael was ready to go forward with his plan immediately. The brothers and Anki planned to kill Cindy the very next day. On December 23rd, Cindy woke up with a full day planned for herself. It was two days before Christmas, and she had some last-minute things to do before she headed home to Illinois the next day for the holiday. Cindy had plans to meet Annette for dinner at 8 so they could exchange gifts with each other before she headed out of town. Cindy likely wanted to put all of this other weirdness with Michael and his brother and Anki aside for a few days to enjoy Christmas with her family. Sadly, Cindy wouldn't make it home that Christmas, and a lot was about to be revealed about these two German brothers. Spoiler alert, they were not Mercedes importers. And we're going to get into the rest of the details after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. About eight months ago, we brought home a little furry bundle of joy who quickly became a huge part of the family. But boy, did I forget all the little things that make having a new puppy challenging. My girl Lila is a German short-haired pointer, and well, let's just say they aren't exactly known for being a calm and collected breed. No, no, GSPs are all over the place. When she decides it's time to do her zoomies, there's no force on earth strong enough to stop her. That's why when it comes to keeping Lila safe, happy, and secure, I knew the halo collar was the only collar I would use. 
Halo is the only smart system with a collar that trains, tracks, and protects your dog so they can safely run free. I'm still anxiously awaiting the arrival of our Halo collar, but I've spent some time learning about all the neat things it can do. With Halo, you can set invisible fences and create boundaries to keep your pup within a safe area using your choice of custom feedback, including the sound of your own voice, to keep them in bounds. This will be especially useful for our family since we live on a large lot with no fence. But the feature I'm looking forward to the most is the ability to track Lila's location through GPS, which will provide a huge peace of mind in the event that she ever does get separated from us. And to make setting up and using your new Halo collar easier, a 21-day training program is included, making the Halo a great choice for any dog, any age, with any level of training. Take advantage of this special limited time introductory offer today. Save 20% on your Halo collar by going to shophalocollar.com slash moms. That's shophalocollar.com slash moms to save 20%. You must go to the site to get this offer and you can only get it here. Shophalocollar.com slash moms. Weddings are back, and so is wedding planning. And if you're newly engaged, I know it can be very overwhelming. But thanks to Zola, it doesn't have to be. Zola is there to make your wedding magical without actually needing black magic to get it all done. Zola makes things easier and less stressful by providing you with everything couples need, all in one place, including wedding vendors, save the dates and invitations, as well as free websites, registry, and more. Planning your wedding is a lot, like a lot, a lot. And back when I planned mine, it was me, a notebook, 7,000 open internet tabs, and a prayer. But with Zola, you can literally plan your entire wedding from your couch online in one tab or on Zola's five-star app. The amount of murder podcasts you can listen to while planning your wedding is really infinite. And if you're planning a virtual wedding, you can even stream your wedding on Zola for free. Making all those planning decisions is difficult, but I would have loved all of Zola's tools, which are completely free to use, by the way. Plus, you can have free guest addressing and free shipping and returns every day. It's easy to see why over 1 million couples are already obsessed with Zola. See what all those five-star reviews are about. Go to Zola.com slash moms today and use promo code SAVE50. That's SAVE50 to get 50% off your save the dates. For peace of mind, you'll receive free change the dates with your purchase. That's Zola.com slash moms. Promo code SAVE50. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were just talking about Cindy and Michael and how Cindy had just announced to her family that she and Michael had been married, which was something he was very, very against. Um, So now we're going to talk a little about Michael and his background. Michael Appelt was the last of seven kids born to his mother, and his brother Rudy was baby number five. The brother's father was a raging alcoholic and a literal Nazi who abused his wife and kids regularly. Some of the children, including Michael, were the result of repeated rape at the hands of this man. After having her sixth child, his mom attempted to undergo a sterilization procedure, but it failed and Michael was born after that. Michael's entry into this world was a rude awakening. He was born blue after a difficult delivery, and his parents referred to him from the start as an unwanted, quote-unquote, hate child. Oh, my gosh. It's just so heartbreaking. Like, that's the most heartbreaking, I think, thing I could even imagine. Right. From the very beginning, that's, oh, man, just coming into the world like that. Michael was constantly malnourished and on the verge of starving throughout his childhood because the family was very poor. The father didn't work regularly, and they relied on government support and whatever money the mom made as a cleaning lady. The family of nine lived in a one-bedroom apartment. The kids all had to start working at age 14 to help the family. 
the appellate father would drug all of the kids with sleeping pills, tranquilizers, and alcohol and chain them up in the basement, sometimes for days at a time with no food or water. The children were also subjected to beatings with an iron rod, and Michael was often beaten until he was unconscious. Sometimes a group of men would be invited over to beat and torture Michael and Rudy. The horror that this family experienced while living with Mr. Appel is unfathomable. Michael and Rudy's sisters were raped by their father growing up. He once even forced sleeping pills down their mom's throat, which caused permanent damage. In addition to the nightmares at home, Michael suffered two other traumatic experiences growing up. When he was seven, an older man abducted him from his backyard and took him to another house where he raped him. Michael attempted suicide after this because he thought his father would beat him to death out of shame. When Michael was 13, he was lured into a cellar while on his way home from school where he was held at knife point and raped again. He attempted to take his life a second time after this. He was hospitalized and it was recommended that he get special treatment at an institution for the seriously mentally disturbed. Both Michael and Rudy attended special schools while they were children. Rudy was actually hit by a truck and also a car as a child, and he had to attend a school for the disabled. His IQ was also under 65, so he needed special learning accommodations. Michael also had a low IQ. He scored 88 on his IQ test and also had to attend a school for kids with learning disabilities, but he eventually dropped out by the ninth grade. Michael, Rudy, and all of the siblings left home as soon as they were legally able to so that they could escape the horrific abuse they endured. In 1985 and 1986, Michael received psychiatric treatment, and one nurse said that he, quote, suffered from severe nightmares, memory loss, and deep depression as a result of the abusive treatment he endured as a child, end quote. Michael joined the military from 1982 to 1983, and he received an honorable discharge. But Rudy, who also served in the military briefly, was dismissed after less than a year due to his low intelligence. It was in 1988 that the brothers decided to move to the U.S. and start conning unsuspecting women. By October, the brothers were introduced to Cindy Monkman, and by Christmas of that year, Cindy had married Michael and was already seeing a ton of concerning behavior. On December 23rd, Cindy took her car in for servicing and had her full day of getting ready for the Christmas holiday ahead of her. Just before 7 p.m. that night, Cindy talked on the phone to her friend Maria. Maria was going to join Cindy and Annette for their 8 o'clock dinner date, and she was calling to confirm that Cindy and Michael would be picking her up at 7.45. While Cindy and Maria were on the phone, Maria could hear Michael in the background, and it sounded like he was just arriving home. So Cindy confirmed their plans for the evening, and Maria planned to see Cindy and Michael soon. But then 7.45 came and went, and they never showed up to pick up Maria. Cindy also did not show up to the dinner with Annette. Her friends became worried immediately, and because it was so close to Christmas, it didn't take long for Cindy's family to clue in as well. Cindy was supposed to contact her sister Kathy to confirm their Christmas plans in Illinois, but she never called. Kathy, Annette, and Maria all left several messages on Cindy's answering machine, but their calls were never returned. Annette tried calling one last time, and this time, Michael answered the phone. He told Annette that Cindy had gotten a phone call at around 7 o'clock that evening from an angry man, and then she left. He alleged that Cindy said she had to go meet someone, but she was going to meet Michael at Bobby McGee's at 10 p.m., but according to Michael, she never showed up. Annette went to Cindy's apartment and noticed that her purse was still there, so she called the police, and an officer came out to speak with them. Michael gave the same story to the police that he gave to Annette. 
The next day, which was Christmas Eve, the search for Cindy was underway, and by the early afternoon, a tragedy was confirmed. In a desert area near Apache Junction, the badly bruised body of 30-year-old Cindy was found with stab wounds to the chest and back. There was a nylon cord and a blood-soaked towel nearby. Cindy's throat had also been cut. Officers secured the area and began looking for evidence and clues. They found tire tracks in the area, but only two of the tracks were clear enough to be tested. They also found a good shoe impression near Cindy's body, as well as a partial shoe impression on her face. The shoes were determined to be a particular style of Reebok tennis shoes. Cindy had been hit numerous times with great force. It was believed that she was conscious when the attack started, and scrapes on her knees led the authorities to believe that she had been standing and then she fell. She had a defensive wound on one of her hands, which indicated that she was conscious while she was being stabbed. Later on December 24th, investigators spoke to Rudy and Anki, who confirmed Michael's story. They said they saw Cindy leave the apartment at 7 p.m. as they were just arriving, and said that Cindy had planned to meet them all at Bobby McGee's later that night. The police also talked to Michael again, and he told them that he did not own any tennis shoes. In the days following Cindy's murder, Michael refused to allow her body to be released to her family in Illinois. He said he wanted her to be buried in Arizona. Eventually, Cindy's family was able to persuade him to release her body, and they actually complied with his request that Cindy be buried in her wedding dress and with a picture of Michael himself. That just makes me crazy. Um, Yeah. yeah, It's so gross to to do that. Ugh, it just makes me mad. On December 31st, Michael, Anki, and Rudy all flew to Illinois for Cindy's funeral. Michael borrowed money to pay for the tickets and used Cindy's life insurance policy as collateral. At the funeral, Rudy actually borrowed a suit from Cindy's father and told the other attendees at the funeral that Michael was too overcome with grief to speak that day. Meanwhile, Michael cried the entire time, but at the end of the funeral when Michael was driving away, Cindy's sister Kathy noticed that his demeanor had changed. He was in the car just laughing and being jovial while he drove off. But then, a few days after the funeral, on January 3rd, Michael contacted Phoenix police and said that he got a really strange and horrifying message on his answering machine that the police might want to hear. The recording was in German, so a detective that spoke German listened to the tape. Loosely translated, the message said, quote, Hear what I have to talk. I have cut through the throat of your wife, and I stabbed her more frequently in the stomach and the back with a knife. If I don't get my stuff, your girlfriend is next, and then your brother, and last it is you. Do it now. If not, you see what happens. My eyes are everywhere. End quote. At this time, the police investigating the murder were already pretty suspicious of Michael, and this alleged answering machine message only made them more suspicious. Because, of course, like, you know, what's going on here? What is this stuff that this person's talking about? It's very convenient that they're speaking in German, you know, of all languages. It's right. German. That's what these guys speak. It, you know, two and two is four. So the investigators worried that Michael, Rudy, and Anki would take off back to Germany. So they started surveilling them. On the night of January 5th, an officer knocked on the door of the apartment to make sure they were home. When Michael answered the door, the officer asked for someone with a made-up name as a cover, just basically saying, you know, oh, is John there? No, but just, you know, to look like he was looking for somebody and not actually there to look for them. So then the officer leaves, and as soon as he's gone, Michael and Rudy actually did something really weird that confirmed to police that they were up to no good. They actually called the police back after this officer left and told them that three black men had just come to the door and threatened them. 
They said the men told them to leave for Los Angeles within a week to explain some mysterious drug dealings. It's thought that they were trying to make it sound like Cindy would have been involved in drugs and that this could have something to do with her murder. The officers really just kept playing along, though, and told the brothers to come into the station, and they said that they would draw composite sketches of these three men. And we're going to get back into more of the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I never really appreciate a good night's sleep until after I've had an awful one. Whether a kid is sick or we're out of town, the day after a crummy night's sleep, I am lagging, irritable, and I cannot wait to just go back to sleep. Compare that to a night in my magical sleep number bed and it couldn't be more different. We spend so much of our lives in bed, it's important to use it to our advantage and help rest our bodies as well as helping to give us a boost of energy and overall well-being. And I can do that with my sleep number bed. I like to live on the wild side, so I recently changed my sleep number to a 25 from a 30, giving me a little more of that cloud feel at night, and it couldn't be more perfect. We were out of town just a few weeks ago, and we actually left our trip a night early thanks to having sick kiddos and a sick husband. My husband and I spoke, and it really came down to where would everyone sleep best to get well-rested and hopefully feel better quicker. It made the decision so easy to go home and back to our sleep number beds. One of my favorite things about the bed is that I can adjust the settings. My perfect sleep number is a 30, but I've been known to go down to a 20 or up to a 50, depending on how I'm feeling that day. I love the customization abilities and how easy it was from start to finish to pick our bed, order it, and have it delivered. Proving quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Special offers for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com moms. Only three things in life are certain, death, taxes, and everyone in your house asking you what's for dinner. Thanks to HelloFresh, one of those things can be taken care of. HelloFresh brings you fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients so you can spend more time enjoying a delicious and nutritious dinner and less time planning and preparing it. In fact, over 90% of ingredients from HelloFresh are sourced directly from farmers, which means only the freshest produce and proteins are delivered right to your home. I've come to accept that life is always going to be busy, so I appreciate that HelloFresh meals can be prepared and on the table in 30 minutes or less. Recently, my daughter and I made the bacon and cream supreme spaghetti with broccoli. I have picky eaters in my house, me being one of the pickiest, but the second spaghetti noodles are involved, everyone's on board. Adding bacon is literally the bacon on top of the delicious meal. With amazing variety and easy-to-follow recipe cards, it's easy to see why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Go to HelloFresh.com moms14 and use code moms14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com moms14 and use code moms14 for up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. 
You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for Dash Pass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. Dash Pass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with Dash Pass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for Dash Pass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about how the police were investigating the Appelt brothers, and there really are starting to become suspicious that they may have had something to do with the murder of Cindy Monkman. On January 6th, the brothers and Anki Dorn went to the police station to be interviewed. Officers talked to Michael and Rudy separately while Anki waited in the lobby for hours waiting for somebody to come talk to her. The detectives prepared sketches based on what the brothers told them about these mysterious three men that came to the door and threatened them, which, if you remember before the break, we said an officer actually went to the door undercover trying to make sure they were home. And then as soon as he left, they called the police and said, hey, these three black men came to the door and threatened us, which probably not a great thing to do. I guess they didn't realize that the first guy who came was an officer. So that was going to be not something they would get away with doing with the right. lie. But the police were playing along and they said, hey, come down to the station. We'll draw up sketches of these guys. So um, they're just kind of playing along and just trying to see how far that they're going to take this. And I I think that that's like genius because it's like a version of what you do to me sometimes where I start talking and you just let me keep talking and see where I'm going to go with it. This is like that on a big massive scale, right? Where the police are like, yeah, okay, just keep going with that. And we're going to see how far that you are willing to take this because we know you don't have anywhere to go, you know, from here. It's a good one to do with your kids too. So when the officers finally brought Anki into a room, they encouraged her to just tell the truth and told her that they would prosecute her if she made this difficult for them. They said that if she confessed, she would have immunity. They also took out photos of Cindy's body to show Anki as an appeal to her conscience, and this tactic worked. Anki ended up confessing the truth to the police. On the morning of December 23rd, as we said, Cindy took her car in for some repairs and had many things on her to-do list. While she was busy doing her stuff, Michael, Rudy, and Anki all went to the rental car agency where they had tried to rent the same car earlier that had the large trunk, and then they returned it because they weren't ready for it just yet. They went back and rented the same car. Later that afternoon, Michael went to Rudy and Anki's motel room and told them that they could have a lot of money if he killed Cindy. Anki and Rudy agreed, and they said they would help, and they planned to do it that night. Michael's plan was to bring Cindy to a restaurant to meet up with Rudy and Anki at 7, and then they would go to the desert and kill Cindy. They went to a place in the desert to practice shooting a crossbow. At 7 p.m., Rudy and Anki drove in the rental car to this German restaurant where they were supposed to be meeting, and they waited for Michael and Cindy to show up. At about 7.15, they saw Michael drive by, but they didn't see Cindy in the car with him. Michael didn't stop at the restaurant, so Rudy and Anki got in their rental car, and they followed Michael towards the desert where they had gone and done the practice shooting earlier in the day. 
According to Anki, Rudy stayed behind Michael and eventually they stopped and Rudy told Anki to lay down in the back seat while he went to talk to Michael outside. Rudy was gone for about 10 minutes talking to Michael and Anki said that during this she could not hear anything they were saying but then Rudy got back in the car and started driving again and they ended up back at the motel where Anki and Rudy had been staying. Both of the men took a shower and changed their clothes before heading out to Bobby McGee's at 10.30. They asked for a table of four, and while they were waiting for a table, the three of them ordered drinks and discussed their alibi. After dinner, they went to a nightclub. It was at this nightclub that Anki said Michael confessed that he killed Cindy before they had planned. By the time Rudy and Anki got to the restaurant at 7, Michael says he had already done it. Michael said that Cindy signed her own death warrant when she got the life insurance policies, which, oh my gosh, I just cannot with any of this. Like you said earlier, it wasn't even that much money. And just to do this to a complete stranger, uh, I... Yeah, it, it didn't even seem like, even though he married her and went along, it didn't seem like he even pretended to really love her. It was just kind right. of like, these are, you're going to do these things. And I think she just wanted it to work out. And so she right. went along with it. Just really sad. Really, really sad. Yeah. But after Michael confessed this to Anki, he did start crying and he allegedly said that he regretted killing Cindy and that it wasn't worth the money. It was around two o'clock in the morning when Michael dropped Rudy and Anki off at the motel and returned to the apartment. According to Anki, the brothers were also responsible for that bogus voicemail message about being targeted for murder. So this is really over the top what they did. This is according to Anki's confession. She said that on January 3rd, which was the day after they all returned from Cindy's funeral, they flew to L.A., and they paid a homeless man $20 to record this bogus message, and then they flew back to Phoenix and contacted the police to report the message. Oh, my gosh. I just can't believe that flying all over the country to, like, set up your alibi and make phone calls. And then but then again, we had something like this last week where it's like you just didn't have to do that at all. Like that just like there was right. that, that wasn't going to help you like that. No, there, that could have gone wrong. And it did in so many ways that just made the police more suspicious. And just why would you do these things? It just doesn't make any sense. And why are all three of them having to do everything? Why yeah. do three of them need to hop on board and go to L.A.? Like, none of that makes sense. You guys are yeah. blowing through this money that you don't have. Right. I, don't I, I think they're still writing checks on IOUs or whatever oh they were my doing gosh. at this point. Yeah. So after Anki made this confession, the Appelt brothers were arrested and charged with murder and conspiracy. They tried to tell the police that Cindy was killed by her ex-boyfriend, Mark, who was a former radio DJ, and that Cindy broke up with him shortly before marrying Michael. On January 9th, Cindy's apartment was searched and they found shoes belonging to the brothers, a crossbow, and two rolls of film that had pictures of Michael wearing tennis shoes that matched the tread they found at the crime scene. From their jail cells, Rudy and Anki wrote several letters to each other that contained lots of incriminating statements and information about the murder and the events surrounding the murder, so the letters were seized by the police. Rudy also had a letter from Michael that was in German, but it said something along the lines of, quote, I have a guy who is getting out in two to four days and then will be free in one to two weeks. It won't matter if the police have anything or not. We're in jail and won't be able to have done that. So don't do anything, okay? Because when a woman is dead, the same thing will have happened. We'll be free and I'll have the money because the police won't be able to do anything. 
I don't understand um, what that means. And as we said, this is like translated from German. So we don't know if it's like exact, like if that's exactly how it would translate because it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, what it he was sounds like there. whenever people put something in like Google Translate and they Google right. Translate to German, like so from German to English, back to German, back to right. English. And right. how far? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't that idea doesn't even make any no, sense. Whatsoever. It really does. Somebody's yeah. getting out and it's going to help them get out and the police it doesn't matter if the police have anything yeah like yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense i would beg to say zero zero percent yeah. <laughs> chance any of that made any sense i did not follow that so michael's trial would begin on april 18th 1990 prosecutors said that he killed cindy for the life insurance policy and that the murder was planned over a period of time they presented a theory that the attack on Cindy began at her apartment and that she was forcibly subdued with a towel and the cord found with her body, and then she was transported to the desert where she was killed. The defense presented their case, which was that Michael had an alibi for that night. He was at a restaurant in Mesa waiting for Cindy to arrive. A waitress testified that she served Michael drinks at the time that Cindy was murdered. She was serving him drinks from shortly before 8 p.m. and then again a few hours later. Of course, the state argues that being seen in the bar was really just a ruse. It was a fake alibi and that he was there after he killed Cindy. Additionally, there was really no proof that he was ever at the bar. The defense did not bring up Michael's horrific childhood or his low IQ, two things that would later come back to bite them. Michael testified and said he didn't know that Cindy was dead until police told him that they found her body and he became hysterical and depressed. He tells his story about Cindy getting a call from another man and saying that she was so nervous after the call that she was actually chain smoking. She allegedly said that she had to go take care of a problem and she'd explain it all later. But Michael said he never saw her again. When questioned about why they got the life insurance stuff set up, Michael said that they got it because they wanted to have kids. He said that everything Anki told the police was a lie and that she was just jealous because she wanted to marry Michael. Imagine framing somebody for murder because you wanted yeah. to marry them. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. So Anki was granted immunity in exchange for her testimony at Michael's trial as well as Rudy's. Detective Davis, who had worked on this case, testified for the prosecution. He said he actually traveled to Germany himself to investigate these brothers, and he spoke with German police who were very forthcoming about the Appelt brothers' history with the law there. Michael actually had a felony conviction. His ex-wife told the detective that Michael had once been involved in an attack with a knife and that he was, quote, quite capable of committing murder for money and had asked her to donate one of her kidneys in order for him to get money, end quote. What? <laughs> Which is not a donation, by the way. That is harvesting your organs for cash. I know. For like this guy. <laughs> if you love me, you will sell your organs. Yeah. I What? I, I mean, so she knows what he's capable of. The two brothers had an extensive background in Germany, including insurance fraud, theft, burglary, and rape. Rudy had spent five years in a German prison for rape and was wanted in Germany for other crimes at the same time of Cindy's murder. On May 11th, Michael was found guilty of premeditated first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder after six and a half hours deliberating. He was sentenced later to that summer, and he received a life sentence for the conspiracy, and he was sentenced to death for the murder. Michael was emotionless as his sentence was handed down. He held up a Bible and said that he was a man of God who was innocent and that he loved Cindy. The day after Michael was sentenced, Rudy's trial began. 
Prosecutors said that the two brothers planned Cindy's murder together and killed her together so they could both benefit from the insurance money. They said they uncovered evidence that suggested that the brothers actually planned to kill another woman before Cindy, and they kind of alluded to it being Annette because Rudy had proposed that secret marriage to her as well, and when she said no, the brothers only started focusing on Cindy instead. More evidence that Rudy was in on the plan was based on the fact that Rudy and Anki were seeing Michael every day, but they continued to let Cindy believe that they had gone back to Germany. Rudy also participated in trying to rent the car in early December and the day that Cindy was killed. The defense in Rudy's case was that Michael did all of this on his own with no help from Rudy and that Michael even killed Cindy before he saw Rudy that night. A forensic pathologist testified that Cindy's wounds were consistent with one attacker and the same pathologist also testified that the killer was likely right-handed. And this ended up being kind of a big deal because Rudy was right-handed, but Michael was actually left-handed. Another doctor testified for the state that he couldn't say for sure how many people were involved in the attack, but he did know only one knife was used. This doctor suggested that one person could have been restraining Cindy while another one attacked her. And he also said that there was no way to tell for sure whether the killer was right or left-handed. Anki testified again at Rudy's trial and said that Michael told her he killed Cindy on his own while Rudy, quote, stood around looking stupid. On August 29, 1990, the trial was over and the jury deliberated for just two hours before finding Rudy guilty of the same charges as Michael. On January 8, 1991, Rudy was sentenced to death for murder and life for conspiracy, just like his brother. Throughout Rudy's trial, he really looked awful. He was pale and thin, and he was constantly in tears. He said he thought Michael was joking about killing Cindy and said that when he actually saw her body in the desert, he was shocked. The brothers both appealed their sentences. Michael filed for a post-conviction petition based on the testimony from the forensic doctor that the killer was right-handed. This petition was denied because it didn't matter which one of them killed Cindy. They both had equal parts in it. Out of many appeals, only one of them worked, but it only worked for Rudy. In 2006, the brothers said that since they were intellectually disabled, they shouldn't have been given the death penalty. IQ tests were scheduled for both men and psychological experts for the defense and the prosecution both found that the men had IQs under 65, so a new hearing was held in 2009 to decide if they were indeed intellectually disabled. During their original trials, the judge and jury never got to hear about their low IQs, which could, of course, have affected the outcome. After the hearing, the court ruled that Michael was not intellectually disabled, but that Rudy was. Rudy was taken off of death row. Anyone with an IQ that's under 70 cannot be on death row, and he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. The court felt that Rudy had developmental disabilities evident from an early age and had been unable to function as an adult on his own. He was dismissed from the military, he never lived alone, and had always depended on Michael to take care of him. Michael, however, had an ability to think critically and direct his own thoughts and actions. He held various jobs, he served in the military, and had scored 88 on his childhood IQ test. The test proctors said that they thought Michael could have fudged the current IQ test to make the score lower. In 2015, the district court ruled that there was evidence suggesting that Michael wouldn't have been sentenced to death if the lawyers had presented evidence of his poor upbringing and dysfunctional childhood. The judge ruled that Michael was entitled to habeas relief, but then a circuit court reversed the decision. All appeals since then have been unsuccessful. 
Michael is currently incarcerated at the ASPC Florence Prison in Arizona, where he remains on death row with 114 other inmates. Arizona hasn't executed anyone since the botched execution of Joseph Wood in 2014. He took two hours to die from lethal injection. A judge then issued a stay on executions in the state. However, earlier this year, 2021, it was reported that Arizona is actually refurbishing the state's gas chamber, which happens to be at the facility where Michael is. Apparently, they're planning on using hydrogen cyanide in future executions. This is the same lethal gas that was used in Auschwitz. Rudy is currently in ASPC Lewis Prison in Buckeye, Arizona. He was denied parole in 2019. Wow, this story is really something. I was actually um, surprised to hear that, too, about Arizona resuming their executions in that way. That's like, I was not expecting that in this day and age. Like, that's such a, I, I, I don't know. It seems very archaic. It really does, yeah. I mean, in general, but not getting into any of actual executions. But that one, I'm I'm very surprised to hear that that would be on the table. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One thing I will say is their childhood was so incredibly messed up. I don't think I've ever heard of anyone having a childhood quite like that, that I cannot believe the defense didn't bring it up. Oh, yeah, I know. And I do think that... It is relevant in a case like this to bring For up sure. there. Not not to say that they should be set free or let go or, no. you know, uh, but I feel like when it comes to sentencing, those kind of things definitely should be taken into consideration. No, I totally agree. It, it seems like they only knew how to con because, you know, they were just looking to survive their whole life. Granted, everything they did was wrong with Cindy and they should be punished, but I cannot believe the defense did not bring that up because I would feel like that's your ace in the hole. Like that's right. That's something that it's going to pull on people's heartstrings. If you're a jury member and hearing that, it's going to do something. You, it's going yeah. to change something in you. Even if it's just the sentencing, I would think it would do something. But I feel so terrible for Cindy, of course, and her family. And and I feel like she was uh, somebody who just really wanted to maybe be loved or be in this relationship and was really hoping for the best and had no idea she was being duped. Like just wanted to believe the best in somebody. It, yeah. Who would believe this would happen to you? Like, no, who, I know. Who would believe this kind of thing could happen? Definitely. And we didn't really get an update on Annette, but I can't imagine how I would feel, you know, if this happened to my friend. It's just heartbreaking oh, yeah, and totally. so terrible. Yeah. She had no idea, of course, but there is a thing with like friends. You know, I have a friend right now whose friend is in this really crazy situation where you just think, but you can't tell them that. You can't right. tell them that this is not a good situation. People have to find out on their own. So you can only say so much. And then it's up to that person to make decisions for themselves. So we have no idea what happened there. But, you know, even Annette leaving uh, Rudy wasn't enough for Cindy, you know, to see yeah. maybe something's not right. Or, you know, who knows? Who knows what somebody's frame of mind is and these kind of things. But And con artists man. are really good at what they do. Like yeah. whenever, when we tell these stories, it sounds, you know, in retrospect and in hindsight, you're like, oh, you know, how could anyone fall for these things? But when you're in that situation, ask anybody who's been conned like that, especially when it comes to like romantic things. Yes, romantic it's cons. It's very easy for people to fall into those kind of traps. And it's like you said, people just, they really want something to be true or to be a certain way. And they're willing to just believe that it is that way and kind of turn the other cheek to some things that maybe they shouldn't be overlooking so yeah it's very it is very sad and the whole concept of conning people like that is 
It's very interesting and fascinating to me, those kind of things. That's why I love our friend Javier and his podcast and the stuff that he does. The work that he does is really awesome yeah. with, with those kind of stories and everything. Okay, so we're going to turn the page. Um, before we do that, though, I just wanted to give a reminder that we are going to be off next week, July 20th, and we will be back on July 27th. We're just going to take our little summer week off yeah so hopefully the weather is going to be nice for us while we are on our little break it's been raining here a lot we just had that storm that passed and it kind of soaked the whole east coast so i'm happy that that's out of the way and hopefully all rain is out of the way for a little while yeah (laughs) it would be so wonderful yeah and it's great that we're having a week off because i feel like you get it's like senioritis when you know you have a week off like you feel a little burnout and you're like okay i just need a little bit of refreshing which is what these weeks kind of do for us because today's last thing before we go we're turning the page mandy yeah doing last thing before we go i took that from you and because we felt like maybe the people represented in the story from Germany, we know that's not what Germany is. And so we decided to do something. I don't know. This is what I'm talking about, burnout. These are where my ideas are. <laughs> facts about Oktoberfest. So it's a little Google the city, a little uh, last thing before we go. So Mandy, I'm Yay. just reading facts to you. And maybe we'll do some fill in the blank ones as we go along. Do you okay. know anything about Oktoberfest? We're I, pulling stuff from Oktoberfest. <laughs> Listen, I do not know anything about actual Oktoberfest, like Germany Oktoberfest. Right. The only Oktoberfest I've ever heard of is like the biker thing that people do down oh, in, yeah. um, you know, Beach. yeah, yeah, yeah. They not bike week because that's in the spring, but then they do a Biketoberfest and it's like in October. Mm. It's like a little play on words there. But I guess I'm just now today years old when I'm learning that they stole that from Germany. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Wow, so that's how much I know. Here we yeah. go. <laughs> So uh, Oktoberfest began in 1810, and it actually originally started in October in Munich, Germany. So it was originally in October, which is why it's called Oktoberfest, but September is warmer there, and they thought that would be more inviting for people to come to. So it changed to September. It celebrated in September, but it actually started in October. Have I given you a fact you didn't know yet? Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) These are – I got this from a site called eDreams. It's like one of those travel sites, and I just thought they were kind of fun. So, uh, Mandy, what company recently released a limited edition of vomit-proof sneakers inspired by Oktoberfest? Yeah, vomit-proof sneakers. Did not double-check this, but it's in the article, so I'm holding them accountable. Um, Converse. <laughs> no, it's Adidas. Oh all my day, goodness! No way. All day I dream about not having vomit on my <laughs> shoes. <laughs> Adidas. Oh my goodness! Ew. Yeah. I mean, yeah. hey, it's smart I, though, right? I feel like there's a market for that. I, I'm not in the market, but I feel like someone no. is. <laughs> no, maybe one of the six million people that attend Oktoberfest annually. Uh, could be in the market for it. And it employs around 13,000 people. It's free to enter. And what I thought was kind of interesting is only 20% of the people that go to Oktoberfest are not from the area. It's 80% is locals to Germany, locals in Munich. Everybody else is uh, from not there. But that's only 20%. I thought it was a huge like how Disney World, it's not that many people from or Orlando people that are here. Or how like to go to Ireland like on St. Patrick's Day or something. Right. Yeah, you would think, yeah, you would think they would have more tourism or like more people yeah. coming to visit at that time. Yeah. So Mandy, back in 1896, there was a very famous 
well, electrician at the time uh, that worked there. Uh, very smart guy. Any ideas who would have worked there in 1896 at uh, one of the beer tents in Oktoberfest? A smart guy? Genius. Very smart. He's such a... Mandy, you're so smart. I'm you're Stein. a regular old... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you want to feel like an Einstein, I didn't know Einstein was alive in 1896. I didn't either. Well, that's what threw me off. And then you said... I don't know what you said. There was something else you said that threw me I off. I gave several. A, a lot of things oh. <laughs> throw me off. <laughs> Everything I said <gasps> threw you off. Whenever Oktoberfest is going on, they actually have their very own pop-up post office, which I thought was kind of interesting. Over 130,000 postcards and gifts are sent every year from this post office. Oh, wow. It's like very wish you were here, but sit, please send my vomit Adidas shoes. Right. <laughs> I need them ASAP. <laughs> um, this one, uh, a couple more. If you wanted to get a food stall or tent, how long do you think you'd have to be on a waiting list, Mandy? If you, if we decided to have a mom's and murder tent, when would we be able to get one in Oktoberfest? I'm going to say five years from now. 20 years. What? It would be what? grandma's and murder by the time we could get a tent. Oh my <laughs> gosh, that's insane. Like, I guess you have to really believe in what you have that's still going to be around whenever you get your spot. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a long time for you to even stay in business, you know, to say like, oh, yeah, 20 years from now, I want to have a tent like your company could be literally in the grave for 10 years. We could all be dead by then. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Let's be honest. Um, Okay, two more things. Uh, There is actually, you know, it's actually kind of a family event. There's uh, lots of rides and stuff going on during the day. Um, And there's actually a lost and found children's office because kids get separated from their parents a lot, which I found to be disturbing and good that they have it, but like kind of crazy that they're like, we have a lost and found children's office. Yeah. Well, they have, they kind of have that at Disney. Oh, they do? I didn't know that. I mean, yeah, there's lost, like lost kids. They, oh gosh. I would be, that sounds like the saddest ride at Disney. (laughs) The Hall of Presidents and the Lost and Found Kids. <laughs> I'd ride it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Let me give him the last one. Mandy, there is one person that has been permanently banned from Oktoberfest. It's a celebrity who was permanently banned from Oktoberfest because she chose to wear a golden and shiny Bavarian Drindle dress to promote a brand of canned wine. Watch none of these facts be correct. And I'm just like spurting off like total nonsense it has to be Katy perry or lady gaga Ooh, i like that you went there think more (laughs) early 2000s think that's hot paris hilton yeah paris hilton no way yeah the locals got organizers to ban her because they were offended by how she was dressed wow yeah (laughs) everybody was offended by how paris hilton was dressed oh my gosh i just had like the worst flashbacks of those super 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 low-rise jeans that like barely came oh my gosh oh my gosh gosh. okay i know (laughs) but thank god people are doing mom jeans now and like it uh, it does upset me though because i see like 18 year old like you're hot you have a great little body and you're putting on mom jeans i'm like no no no. this is the time you do the paris hilton skinny jeans yeah go all out because in a few years you're gonna want these to be in style and thank you baby jesus baby jesus they are in style right now they are Um, right now but the thing is like it kind of stinks for them because when they really want them to be in style exactly they're not going to be anymore so yeah 
Exactly. So why are you wearing them now? I, I yeah. would be <laughs> wearing the worst stuff right now. I would totally dress like Paris Hilton if I was 18. No, I wouldn't. I was 18 you at one point. Yeah, no. And <laughs> I dress older than I do now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Mandy. I think. All right, Melissa. I think we have both done enough. Yeah. So happy. Wait, no, we said that last week. It's our four-year anniversary this month. I think we did a little early celebration and we lied about when it was. Oh, I think yeah. it's I think it's actually happening when we are on our week break. So that's perfect. We're yeah. celebrating our four-year anniversary with a week off. So yes, yeah, super exciting. I love that. I was like, yeah, Mandy, I don't is was that the right date? She's like, no, no, no. I think it's later in July. We went on a whole yeah. I went on a whole tirade about how it was our four-year anniversary. <laughs> Didn't even know. I think I got my kid's birthday confused with it. Maybe that's yeah. what I did. Something. But either yeah. way, happy four-year anniversary. Yay. Yes. This time for real. Happy four-year anniversary. And yeah, I was we, lying last time. It, yeah. And we will see you guys not next week, but the week after that. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great two weeks. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.